you. Yes, my president. What is your name? Emiliano Spata. Huerta's forces are coming through the pass, Emiliano. Did you take the land away from these people? I took what I wanted. I took their wives, too. It's Marlon Brando as Zapata, the tiger who blasted the continent. Gene Peters as the beauty whose heart he captured. Anthony Quinn and a cast of thousands. Hello, and welcome to Assassinations Podcast. You've just heard some extracts from the movie Viva Zapata, the 1952 biopic about Mexican revolutionary general and agrarian reformer Emiliano Zapata. The film is a fictionalised account of the life and death of a man who led a ragtag army from the backwater of southern Mexico all the way to the presidential palace during the Mexican Revolution of the early 20th century. A hero to many, especially the poor and dispossessed, a villain to others, especially the landed elite, Zapata has gone down in Mexican history as a towering figure in the struggle for the economic welfare of the rural poor and for the rights of indigenous peoples. In the movie, Zapata is depicted by Marlon Brando, sporting brown makeup and a rather unconvincing moustache. Brando's performance is admirable, cultural insensitivities aside. But the real man was, inevitably, a far more complex character than his celluloid incarnation. So, Today I will endeavour to tell the tale of Emiliano Zapata, the tiger of the South, the scourge of the aristocracy. This is the legend of the brave, feared leader of a peasant army, of a man to whom the hungry masses made their cry, Land and freedom! Viva Zapata! Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast, I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. Emiliano Zapata was from the state of Morelos in southern Mexico. 
He was born into a family of modestly well-off farmers of Mezito ethnicity, that is to say, Mexicans of mixed native and Spanish ancestry. Emiliano was the ninth of ten children. His family was far from being rich, but they were better off than many of their neighbours, poor peasants who were struggling to get by. In particular, the common people of the region were being driven from their farms by ruthless landowners who sought to expand their vast haciendas. This wealthy aristocratic elite either forced the peasants from the land, or they twisted the law to get what they wanted. Though he did receive some formal schooling, young Emiliano was destined for a life of farming. At the age of around 16, he had to help take care of his family following the death of his father. As it turned out, he had a very good head for business, and his farm flourished. He was also a highly skilled horseman who competed in rodeos. These skills did not go unnoticed, and he was soon hired as a horse trainer for a very wealthy local landowner, a man who just so happened to be the son-in-law of the President of Mexico, Porfirio Diaz. Tensions between the Mexican elite and the local mixed-race people continued to rise, as the poor came under increasing pressure from the expanding haciendas. Even peasants who were able to hold on to their farms ended up in debt to the landowners, with the result that they had to work off that debt labouring on the haciendas, often under very harsh conditions. Porfirio Diaz had been the Mexican head of state since 1876. Mexico was a democracy in name only. Elections were held, but the same aristocratic and big business elite continued to rule in their own interests, regardless of the welfare of the common people. Unsurprisingly, this generated a huge amount of resentment amongst the masses. By the early 20th century, tensions were reaching boiling point as social inequality in Mexico rose to such an extreme level that the rich seemed to operate with total impunity, while the poor reached the point where they simply couldn't take it anymore. Despite his own successes in life, Emiliano was deeply sympathetic to the impoverished people of his region. Fluent in Spanish and the local native language, he sought to advance the rights of his neighbours against the greedy landowners by pressing their case to President Diaz. In 1892, he was part of a delegation from Morelos, which sought an audience with the President. Although to their faces he promised to deal favourably with their petition, as soon as their backs were turned, Diaz had them arrested. For his efforts, Zapata was forcibly conscripted into the army. Despite this, he continued to play a leading role amongst his people, eventually being elected as the leader of the local community. Aged just 30, Zapata was respected as a brave, skilled, and intelligent figure, 
just the sort of man who could help the people defend themselves against the depredations of the upper class hacienda owners and the undemocratic government of President Diaz. He led a struggle to protect the peasants' farms and even to redistribute some of the traditional lands that had been absorbed by the haciendas. Zapata tried to do this peacefully, either using the law or through negotiations. But it was increasingly clear that this was not a struggle that was going to be settled peacefully. There were an increasing number of conflicts between the poor and the big landowners, and they were turning really violent. The peasants would raid and try to occupy the haciendas, the elites would seize peasant farms and burn their villages. With violent conflict swirling, and disgusted with the obvious bias of the government, Zapata increasingly came to believe that the only way the common people could survive was through full-on armed rebellion. If the plantation owners would not yield, then surely the people must prevail by force. The Mexican Revolution broke out in 1910, following elections that saw long-term incumbent Porfirio Diaz face off against Francisco Madero. Madero was born into a very wealthy family. However, he was a reformer who wanted Mexico to become a more modern society, not a semi-feudal country where the mega-landowners were in control. Therefore, he supported social democratic policies and some land reform, which he hoped would both weaken the powerful elite and provide a major boost to middle-class and poor Mexicans. Zapata supported the candidacy of Madero, regarding him as the best chance to achieve peaceful reform in the country. Not that Zapata completely trusted him. The poor people had been promised reforms in the past, only to be betrayed once politicians gained power. President Diaz, then aged 80, was not willing to let go of the office that he had held for over three decades. He jailed Madero during the election campaign, but the candidate's supporters broke him out of prison and he fled for a while over the border to Texas. In a result that was universally viewed as a blatant fraud, Diaz was declared the winner of the popular vote. In fact, he claimed to have retained the presidency by a landslide. Not surprisingly, Madero refused to accept this rigged result. He issued a declaration that the Diaz presidency was illegal and called for nationwide revolt. Madero's family was vastly wealthy, so he could draw upon his own resources to support the war. He also had a lot of support from within the United States. Madero said that his reform agenda would help develop the Mexican economy, opening up new opportunities for US businesses to thrive there. In particular, he sought the support of the Rockefeller-owned Standard Oil Company. It had a strong interest in acquiring the Mexican Eagle Petroleum Company, a business that had been set up by an Englishman, but which operated, in effect, 
as a piggy bank for Porfirio Diaz and his regime. So, getting rid of the old president could be a real money spinner for John D. Rockefeller and the other owners of Standard Oil stock. Nor were they the only ones in the United States who backed Madero, who was viewed as a new broom who would sweep away the corrupt network of entrenched interests within Mexico's ruling class, opening up the rich resources of the country to investment and exploitation by Yankee capitalism. Zapata joined Madero's military campaign to oust Diaz from the presidential palace. Again, he didn't really think that Madero was much of a reformer. Zapata knew that this scion of one of Mexico's richest families was not exactly a natural friend of the poor and dispossessed. But he looked like the best available option at the time. The first military campaign of Zapata was the capture of the hacienda of an important ally of Diaz. He then captured a strategic city after a six-day battle in May of 1911. Meanwhile, another rebel leader named Pancho Villa was beating the government's forces in the north of the country. Madero overthrew Diaz in May of 1911. A provisional government was formed under the titular leadership of a diplomat named Francisco León de la Barra, who served as president for six months before Madero formally assumed office. Some new land reforms were forthcoming, and Madero promised fresh, genuinely democratic elections. However, Zapata and others were not happy with the pace or scale of the reforms. He urged Madero to take bolder action to redistribute land away from the hacienda owners back to the common people. Instead, the new president installed a conservative governor in Morelos who sided with the landowners. Zapata and others who favoured radical change declared that they were in revolt against this new regime, which they claimed had only won power by making false promises. Zapata fled to the mountains, there to plot an armed rebellion against the government. With the help of a local schoolteacher, who had been his mentor, Zapata issued a declaration setting out his vision of land reform. The document stated that Madero had betrayed the people who had fought for him in the revolution, and it outlined a vision of a new and, as they saw it, more just society. Under the banner, Reform, Freedom, Justice and Law, the demands included that property taken from the poor and indigenous people by the landlords should be returned to all those who could prove they had titles to that property. Where ownership was in question, tribunals were to be set up to determine who the land really belonged to. The declaration went even further, stating, because the vast majority of Mexican citizens own little to no land, one-third of property of Mexican monopolies will be taken and redistributed to villages and individuals without land. That to the villages there be given what injustice they deserve as to lands, timber and water. 
Various other radical demands were made, culminating in the following denunciation of the man Zapata believed had betrayed the revolution. Mexicans, consider that the cunning and bad faith of one man is shedding blood in a scandalous manner, because he is incapable of governing. Consider that his system of government is choking the fatherland and trampling with the brute force of bayonets on our institutions. Zapata raised a force of poor peasants, named the Liberation Army of the South, to challenge the authority of the new president and to press for land reform. The force was soon known more popularly as the Zapatistas. Though he was in effect their leader, the structure of Zapata's army was very loose and the ranking system rather fluid in nature. The peasants still needed to work their lands, so they came and went from the ranks as needed. They were people of the pueblos, the indigenous villages, where social structures simply did not conform to the strictures of life in a regular army. Despite, or perhaps because of this odd structure, the Zapatistas proved to be a highly effective fighting force. They were familiar with the territory of southern Mexico, they had the support of the local people, and they were close to their supply lines. Zapata understood that his army was not strong enough to launch a full-on attack on Mexico City, so they fought to gain control of much of the region, winning arms and supplies, and able to launch raids upon government forces. Gaining momentum, the Zapatistas seemed on the verge of taking the capital and deposing the hated president. But history would assign that task to someone else. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Would you like to find out about some of the background material I use to research for this and other episodes? In that case, I'd like to tell you about the Assassinations Podcast Bookstore. From Princess Diana to Georgie Markov to our current season, I have relied on some fascinating primary sources and illuminating secondary analysis. I've also benefited from contextual material such as movies, as well as novels, and even the odd musical. In my first ever episode, on the assassination of Grigory Rasputin, I enjoyed enormously a brilliant book by historian Douglas Smith. I can't recommend it enough. Then, in season two, in which I dealt with the deadly world of spies, I covered the life and death of Alexander Litvinenko. It was an incredibly complex case, and I relied heavily upon the findings of the Litvinenko Public Inquiry, which acquired a vast quantity of evidence relating to the case. Then, last season, when I was writing about the Julio-Claudian dynasty, I found the novel I, Claudius by Robert Graves to be a wonderful way to get into the spirit of the era. 
All these works, and many more, can be accessed if you go to our website, assassinationspodcast.com. There you will find a link to the bookstore. Once on the page, you'll see links to this reference material. The products on this page are affiliated links. Click on something that you're interested in, and you'll be taken to an Amazon page. If you then make a purchase, Assassinations Podcast gets a little commission, at no cost to you. It's a simple, easy way to access interesting books, films, and other resources, while also helping Assassinations Podcast. Now, back to the show. In 1913, one of President Madero's generals turned against him. Victoriano Huerta led a conspiracy against Madero, deposing and assassinating him. Huerta then assumed the presidency. This sudden turn of events was opposed by Zapata and also by the forces of Pancho Villa in the north of the country. Huerta was a classic old-school reactionary whose regime would rely on the army and the most conservative forces in the Mexican elite. Zapata, who had been proclaimed supreme chief of the revolutionary movement of the south by his men, continued to fight for agrarian rights against this new regime. The conflict continued for months, with the Mexican army committing atrocities in the south, and the poor peasants continuing to attack and occupy the haciendas. Eventually the forces led by Zapata, Villa, and two other revolutionary generals overpowered the federal government, forcing Huerta to flee the country in June of 1914. Adding complexity to the situation in Mexico, in April of that year, President Woodrow Wilson sent US forces to occupy the city of Veracruz on the Caribbean coast. After the fall of Huerta, the leading figures of the revolution now vied for power. Zapata insisted that any new government would have to commit to his agrarian reform program, and he offered himself as head of an interim government in order to instigate these changes. This proposal was rejected by more conservative forces, who viewed his policies as too radical, and who, frankly, viewed the indigenous people of the Morelos region as little more than savages. Zapata and Pancho Villa formed an uneasy military alliance, and by the end of 1914, Mexico City was occupied by their respective forces from the south and the north of the country. Zapata and his army then withdrew to the south. They were not interested in assuming complete control over Mexico. Rather, their focus was on implementing the land reforms that they had fought so hard for. Back in their fields in Morelos, the peasants who had taken up arms under Zapata's banner now focused on growing crops, feeding their families, and trying to rebuild from the years of warfare. A tentative peace ensued for much of 1915. However, tensions between Zapata and Villa led to the erosion of their alliance. Meanwhile, 
the more conservative forces continued to push back, eventually regaining Mexico City. A man named Venustiano Carranza assumed executive power. He had been one of the leaders of the revolution against Madero, however, like Madero, he was from a very wealthy family and he was predisposed to a more moderate form of political change, one that did not disrupt social relations within the country. Nor, crucially, did Carranza wish to expropriate the big foreign-owned business interests. He therefore won the support of President Woodrow Wilson who recognised him as the head of state of Mexico in October 1915. With US backing, the Carranza regime now had a major advantage over its rivals, principally Villa and Zapata. When federal government forces marched south to suppress Morelos, the Zapatistas responded with guerrilla actions, which were able to hold back the assault for a while. In 1916, Carranza sent an army to attack Morelos from the northwest, and Zapatista positions began to fall. Thousands of peasant fighters were taken prisoner, packed onto trains and carried to Mexico City. From there, they were effectively enslaved, sent to labour on the plantations of the rich families that backed Carranza. Zapata and his dwindling forces were compelled to retreat to the hills. Desperately short of arms and unable to match the federal forces in the field, they could only carry out raids on government-held positions and transportation infrastructure. The federal forces responded with counterinsurgency measures that brutalised the pueblos, killing whole families and destroying crops. Despite everything, by the end of 1916, the Zapatistas managed to repel the invaders. Though they were outgunned by the army of Carranza, this was their land. They knew it. They could move skillfully and discreetly through it, supported by the local villagers. And they were willing to die for it. Zapata once again sought to carry out his political agenda, based on land redistribution, support for poor farmers, and attempts to institute local democratic reforms. Though some of his commanders urged him to launch a counter-offensive against the forces of Carranza, Zapata decided to concentrate on stabilising Morelos, allowing his men to return to their fields. In the meantime, Carranza sought to consolidate his position. National elections and a new constitution seemed to offer hope that an accommodation could be reached, with promises of the sort of reforms that the Zapatistas had long fought for. Some of Zapata's advisers urged a deal with Carranza. But when two of his closest comrades moved to surrender to the federal government, Zapata had them executed. Further setbacks ensued. The outbreak of the Spanish influenza in the winter of 1918 wiped out an estimated 25% of the entire population of the Morelos region. Meanwhile, 
Zapata was aware that the end of the First World War would free the hand of the United States government. He feared that returning US soldiers would be sent into Mexico to support the government of President Carranza. In early 1919, Zapata offered to cooperate with the federal government, but only if Carranza resigned and a new, more acceptable leader took his place. Zapata also sought alliances within the federal armed forces, hoping to split the army and, if possible, instigate a mutiny against the Carranza government. A plan was hatched by one of Carranza's generals to have a top military commander appear to defect to Zapata's side. This commander, Jesus Guajardo, said that he could secure vital supplies, arms and men to bolster the Zapatistas. Seeking to force Guajardo to prove his bona fides, Zapata ordered him to attack a government position. Guajardo agreed, but he notified the garrison of this position ahead of time. When Guajardo's battalion approached, a mock battle was staged. Now convinced that Guajardo was the real deal, Zapata agreed to meet with him in order to accept his formal defection and then to plan how to proceed against the federal government. On April 10th, 1919, Guajardo and Zapata met in the Hacienda de San Juan in Morelos. There, Guajardo's men lay in wait. Zapata was gunned down, his body riddled with bullets. Zapata's corpse was gruesomely displayed, with photographs taken in order to be published in the press, to prove to all of Mexico and the world that the great revolutionary had been slain. Despite the assassination of their leader, the common people of Morelos continued to support the ideals of Emiliano Zapata. Though many Zapatista commanders made peace with the central government, with some becoming elected local officials or even playing a role at the national level, The motive forces that drove the peasants into armed rebellion a decade earlier, their demands for land and justice, had not gone away. Therefore, fighting in Morelos against Carranza continued. Zapatistas had almost total control of the state, where they carried out a programme of agrarian reform and land redistribution regardless of what the authorities in Mexico City said or did. Though there have been many vicissitudes, setbacks, atrocities and triumphs over the decades, the spirit of Zapata continues to live on amongst many of the indigenous people of Morelos. Zapata's influence can still be seen even though Mexico never implemented the sort of radical land reform that he envisioned, some land that had been taken under Diaz was formally restored in the 1920s and there were further limited reforms in the 1930s. To this day, there are those who take inspiration from the revolutionary hero. The Zapatista Army of National Liberation controls large parts of the Chiapas region of southern Mexico today, 
de facto autonomous of the central government, it is a large indigenous movement with an ideology that is rooted in collectivism, a melding of socialism with the traditional customs and social structures of the Pueblos. Beyond that, the principles of Zapatismo, the loose ideology associated with Zapata and his peasant movement, continue to have an influence upon the political culture of Mexico. One of the most iconic expressions of Zapatismo is that the land belongs to the tiller. This is an idea that goes beyond legal ownership, though Zapata did fight for the peasants to hold on to their legal claims. Rather, the idea is rooted in a profound, almost spiritual, connection between the people, especially those of native ancestry, and the land that they have farmed for centuries. In Zapatismo ideology, this is even more important, even more powerful, than the legal claims of the landlord. Zapata is now regarded as a national hero, though of course not without his critics. Towns, streets and entire neighbourhoods are named after him. Especially for the poor and indigenous people, Zapata is still revered as an emancipator, someone who put the interests and the rights of the oppressed first. If there is no justice for the people, let there be no peace for the government, he once said. But, most famously, he coined a phrase that has entered into the lexicon of virtually every liberation movement across the world. It is better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. Thank you for listening to this episode of Assassinations Podcast. This episode was researched and written by me, Neil Cooper. Lindsay Morse produces and edits the show. The theme music was composed and performed by Graham Ronald. I'm going to take a study break next week. Then, we'll be back on December 23rd with the first of a two-part look at the assassination of Indian independence leader and civil rights icon, Mahatma Gandhi. His is a case I've wanted to cover for a long time and I'm really looking forward to exploring the life and times of a man who is, surely, one of the most important and fascinating people in history. We have a bonus available to accompany this look at Emiliano Zapata. In it I will go, behind the episode, to talk about my views on the case and consider just where Zapata, a general at the head of an army during a civil war, might fit into our idea of civil rights. In the bonus, I'm also going to do a mini-review of the film Viva Zapata, from which we've heard a couple of extracts. This bonus is available right now to our Patreon supporters. If you're not yet a supporter, but would like access to this bonus and a host of other exclusive material, then please head on over to patreon.com slash Assassinations Podcast. Pledges start at just $1 per month, with additional perks for those who choose to support the show at a higher level. 
thanks for tuning in to Assassinations Podcast, and I look forward to seeing you in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye.